Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dian. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Vay. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Leo. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we begin, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay, yeah. My name's Aaron Vay. I am a freelance iOS and Mac developer. I'm based in Whitby, Ontario, which is somewhere east of Toronto. I've been doing development for some 15 years now. Started with the web, moved on to iOS and Mac. Really, I love the Mac the best. It's where I've sort of came up, if you will, learning how to program. While I'm working on developing my own apps, uh, for the most part, and have been doing that for a long time, uh, I actually make my money by freelancing. So I'm a contractor that does iOS work. Yeah, so I think we're in the same boat. A lot of similarities there with what I do. And today, specifically, you wanted to talk about indie development in the Mac space. Mm-hmm. You want to explain what, why you wanted to talk about that, but also what is kind of the state of Mac indie development? Yeah. Um, so I've always felt that the Mac was the sort of premier platform for getting things done. Um, productivity apps, I think, are sort of the biggest story about the Mac. Ever since the advent of iOS through the iPhone and then the iPad, I've really felt that applications there just aren't as robust as they can be on the Mac. And I spend all day on a thing, so I want the best apps to be there to get things done. And I want to make them because I love the Mac so much, always have, that I've always felt that the best place to make the best apps is on the best platform, which is the Mac. And that's why I like to do that. So as for the state, you ask, well... Yeah, it's tough. It's tough because iOS has sucked all the air out of the room in terms of Apple's focus and in terms of sort of cultural mindshare. While more people are using the Mac than have ever used it before, some 200 million Mac users are out there right now. And you don't have to go far to see everybody using Macs, right, in public. I spend a lot of time at Starbucks doing my own thing. A lot of people use Macs. It, it's crazy how many there are out there. So more people have this thing than ever before, but are they actually getting more software than ever before represents an ongoing challenge. So it's kind of a tough time, honestly. Why? So, I, I mean, I'm in the same boat. I, I probably am on my Mac more than on my iPhone. Why do you think, do you think like there's a market for productivity apps on the iPhone? Or is it that you think like you personally, you and I personally, honestly, prefer productivity on the Mac or what, what, what do you think is going on there? Probably a couple things. First off is that like iOS has made a lot of harder things simpler in terms of providing apps that give you very focused and tight capabilities, right? Small apps that, that do single things, right? Whereas on the Mac, it's a more complex platform. You know, not a lot of people are technically proficient enough to feel comfortable installing apps even. And then there's the whole web thing so that you have, you know, people can go to like say Figma and not only have an app that's already working and fully featured, but that has collaboration capabilities that I think have long been sort of a weakness of AppKit and the Mac in general is that broad capability of um, collaboration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm glad you brought up the browser part because that's a that's the other thing is like, yeah, people want to do a lot of development on, or a lot of, do, people use their iPhone a lot, a lot more. I'm just not super comfortable with like using an iPhone for a really long period of time and doing productivity on the iPhone and things like that. And it's so limited, like just the screen. And then I'm glad you brought up browser because like, 
that's the thing. That's where you get Electron, right? Is where it's like, oh, you build it once and then you could use it everywhere. And it's kind of the same idea with the browser app. Yeah, um, I have feelings on that. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's the same idea as like the idea of build once and deploy everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, which just, yeah. I mean, I'll let you go ahead on your rant if you want to, as far as Electron is concerned. I don't know that I have much to add to the to the well-known and well-documented rants that are available already regarding Electron. But, I mean, it's obviously like the case that the subjective experience of a user with an Electron app is inferior to the one that you would get from a an AppKit app, a native app. Like, I, I just, when I look at it as someone who cares about these things, that's the problem, right? Is that I care about these things. <laughs> you know, I don't see an app that I would like to work on myself, right? As as an, a developer, I want to make the thing that is awesome. And the awesome thing is not built with Electron. It can't be. Um, so that's just not where I want to put my focus. Like, I mean, if I only cared about making some functionality available on a computer, I would probably stay with web technologies, right? Because if that's all I care about, then that's the easiest way to do it. But I care about way more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get into the framework landscape a bit. So we talked a lot, we mentioned Electron, of course, but then there's a native tech, AppKit, SwiftUI, Catalyst. Have you, I guess you must have enough experience to have been building apps in AppKit, I would assume. Is that still your default choice or where do things stand? Oh, man. Why don't I tell you a couple of things about uh, what I've been working on lately, and maybe that would help. So I've I've been all over the place. I started, you know, very beginning using Macs, building for the Mac with AppKit. But really of late, because I do a lot of my daily work professionally in iOS, I'm often finding myself like very familiar with UIKit, obviously, and therefore very familiar with Catalyst. But as my focus of late in my indie apps has really been on the Mac, I've really wanted to get the best quality experience that I can for that platform. And I've started the last couple of times, I've got two apps on the go right now. Uh, one is in beta right now, Quantum Author, and the other is an unnamed blog app, which you know I won't get too much into. But Quantum Author, I wanted it to be like a Catalyst app. I tried building it as a Catalyst app, but I just couldn't get it to work right you know there are so many little edge cases things that i would like to have work correctly in my mind that only AppKit can provide so i found it really frustrating and i i backed out and then i backed back in again using swift ui let's try swift ui to build a mac app using the swift ui abstract right and that didn't work either that was even worse because the state of things being as they are this was like last fall so okay, okay. Back in again, this time, AppKit. I had to throw in the towel and say, if I want to do it right, I've got to use the best tool for the job. And I feel bad about that, like because I know it's not the future, right? Like, right. 10 years from now, will someone be able to run an AppKit app? I think probably yes. I think they will. <laughs> but I certainly wouldn't hit Command-N in Xcode and start a new AppKit app 10 years from now, <laughs> I don't think. Well... It helps you because you have experience with AppKit. My experience with AppKit is, it's not bad. It's it's just like very surface level, like very simple stuff. Um, and for me, yeah, like all of the stuff that I've been doing, uh, like I'm building Bushel right now in, in SwiftUI. 
there's it's not perfect by any means there's workarounds and obviously sometimes a little little bit of app kit here and there sprinkled in but for the Mm. most part i i don't feel like i'm losing anything that i would gain with app kit because i'm quite frankly ignorant of what app kit provides and i think that's a big big part of it is if you're a new developer yeah go with swift ui you're not gonna there's nothing you're gonna miss what what are i guess some of the big things that you let's start with catalyst what are some big things that you're just like wow like they don't even have that in catalyst that i really want in app kit Okay, so one of the biggest problems I had right from the top was dealing with like a source list that provides like access to a hierarchical list of files with okay. drag and drop support, moving multiple items, and you know creating new new folders and files in AppKit. That's an NS outline view, and the Swift UI and UI Kit versions of those things are just not to the standard that I need to see them. So that's, that's primarily what caused me to back away. And now okay. it's all to say, like even making it an app kit was extremely challenging. Like it was okay. a monumental task. Like it, it took many weeks to get to the level that I wanted, you know, for something that you might see in Xcode, right? If you were in Xcode, you know, that outline view on the left with your files mm-hmm. and folders in it is basically what I'm talking about. And it's, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, one thing I can say, though, is that the beauty of Swift UI is that you can sprinkle it throughout your AppKit application. So, like, you know, I know you know this, but, you know, for your listeners, readers, watchers, what are we doing here? Anyway, fantastic. Depending, depending on, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Is that you can, you can use this Swift UI anywhere that you want. So I'll have views where I'm like, well, that's a pretty straightforward view. I can Swift UI that. And, okay. and I do, you know? And so I feel like it's, if... As time goes on and as Swift UI improves, which it will, as, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Apple is focused on this technology. They are improving it every year, is that I can do more and more. And ultimately, like, like what is it, the ship of Theseus? I can ship a Theseus, my app, into right. a Swift UI app eventually. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's cool that you, so I assume you're using like whatever it is, MS hosting controller or whatever the thing is to put, okay. Rather than the other way around where you have NS view representable, representable it is. Yeah. Yeah. You're going the other way where your, your app is an app kit and then the pieces are in Swift UI where you can. Okay. That's very cool. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, well, we have to, we're obligated by law since this is July to talk about. WWDC. Mm. And one thing that you had mentioned was the big thing with WWDC was Vision OS and how there's ramifications for AppKit regarding Vision OS. You want to explain what that means exactly? Well, what I think about it, at least, I don't know what it means. We're, we're going to have to wait. But yeah. certainly the thing that I've taken from Apple's announcement and like off the top, I really want to say that is there anything more Apple-like than Vision OS and the Vision Pro? I mean, like, honestly, like I look at that and I'm like, well, oh my gosh, Apple has, you know, looked at the market for, you know, sort of 3D, you know, operating systems, if you will, and said, no, you're all doing it wrong. Here's how you do it. And they invested untold resources, unbelievable amounts of resources, time, money, and people to, to make these most fundamental technologies invisible to the user, right? Where you can put something on your face and you're seeing the world exactly as it is if you hadn't had that thing on your face. That 
very table stakes thing that no other vendor cares about is is uh, probably beyond most people's reach in terms of other companies being able to produce this technology. And that's just the stage for this operating system that they present in that virtual environment that looks super real, super real. Mm -hmm. So this ability to provide a canvas that gives you access to the world of apps as Apple has been building it over the last 30 years, 40? Anyway, it's a long time. You know, <laughs> all these technologies coming together from macOS to iOS and then having like SwiftUI as sort of the next stage of that, that style of app, the, the iPad style of app, if you will, being directly portable to Vision OS is their path going forward. And it seems obvious, right? It's like, that's, you know, how else could they have done it except for this way? And I, I find that like just classic Apple is what I would say. Now, the thing I'll add about it, of course, is that I think Vision OS represents the first answer Apple has ever given about what's the future of the Mac, because iOS was no successor to the Mac. No, there's no iPhone or iPad that could take the place of a Mac in terms of mm. form factor and ergonomics. But Vision OS possibly could when paired with a keyboard and <laughs> maybe a mouse, maybe not a mouse, but a keyboard at least. I feel like you could be sitting on a couch with a keyboard in your lap with the goggles on and do everything you need to do just as comfortably, but with a much larger canvas for applications. Whereas on, on an iPad, even a 13-inch iPad, it's not as productive an environment. There's just no way. Well, that's, that's the thing I wanted to ask. I want to ask about the iPad first. What's, have, you ever, have you ever gone the route of like, doing Mac stuff on the iPad and using an iPad and like, what do you think are some of the shortcomings with iPad and iPad OS as far as productivity is concerned? Well, it's, it's ergonomics first and foremost, the iPad is like a, a, a plate that you're holding in front of yourself and you, your only real interaction model with it is this thing right here. And mm -hmm. so it's a much lower resolution environment in that sense. Everything is bigger. Like if you put like a 13 inch iPad next to a 13 inch MacBook, you see the difference quite readily, right? What's that called where it's like touch is less precise than mouse pointer. And like, I forgot what that rule was, but I remember that early on when the iPhone came out it was like, yeah, you can't make buttons the same size as you would on a no. computer because you know, we're all fat fingering these devices right. and it's hard yeah. to do that. Your fingers are way too fat. And so, yeah. you know, that's why like a, a touch target on iOS is 44 points and has always been. And even on Vision OS, it's 44 points. But when on Mac OS, it's like you can do it 22 because the cursor is, you know, twice as precise then, let's say. And that's just, you know, sort of a fundamental difference between those platforms. But like, I, I cannot get over the primacy of this thing, this thing right here, you know, mm -hmm. it's right. so important and you don't have it on iPad. I remember back in 2010, we knew the iPad was coming. This is just prior to the announcement. And I, I went on extended internal fantasies, thought, thought experiments, if you will, about what they've got to have some kind of text input story for iPad, right? Because it, it would be crazy just to have a sheet of glass that's like an iPhone. That would be nuts. They would never do that, right? That's what they did. <laughs> but right. I, always, I imagined like, surely on the back of it, it would have some kind of cording system I really went off to the weeds oh. that would allow you to type text in, you know, while you're holding it, you know, yeah. 
course they didn't do that, you know, but I always felt that it was so lacking that there was just like an on-screen keyboard. It's like, okay, but like, it's just, you're never going to be good with that. Connecting a Bluetooth keyboard. Okay. But now you've got this janky setup. So I don't know. It's, it's never been good like that. The Mac on the other hand, you know, especially since, you know, 2020 when the new M1s came out and have become thinner and lighter, uh, rivaling an iPad in terms of portability, but dramatically trouncing it in terms of capability. Why would anyone use an iPad? I use it to read. Right, right. So a couple of things. Like I I tried using an iPad. It was fine, but it was just like I kept missing out. The, the, the Mac, Mac OS just has, I don't know if it's the security or what, but the ability to like interconnect between app experiences with multiple windows is just so much easier on the Mac. Like I can drag, like ever all of that stuff. Of Whereas course. on the iPad, you're really limited by the sandbox yeah. and how you can, how you can like send one thing from one app to another thing, an image or, and yeah, there's NS user activity and all that stuff, but it's still not fully complete and you're dependent on developers to do that. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing you mentioned was, Oh, the other thing I was going to mention was like, I've been really looking forward to like a big iPad. Cause that's one of the things I feel is like, if I have a keyboard and an iPad, like I want a bigger screen. Like I'm spoiled here with my my what studio is it display. XDR. Yeah, oh, even X- better. Okay. No, I have an XDR. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And like I just love having all that screen real estate. And then of course at Dubdub they announced the MacBook Air 15 inch, and I'm like, that's it. That's what I want. Like, why am I going to wait for an iPad that's going to be large and limited when I could just have a Mac with a larger display? And I love this new thing. It's amazing. It's just. It's gorgeous. It works great. It's it's exactly what I need as my backup, my portable device. Yeah. And like I, it's like why would I ever get a 15 inch iPad? It's like this is che- probably cheaper, honestly, than whatever. The oh, it would be. IPad's gonna oh be. yeah. Right. Absolutely. And it's like yeah, it's like everything I need. So yeah. The, so the thing I was gonna say is going back to the Vision Pro. Yeah. Like you and I, or many people, use their iPad for reading books for watching movies like it's pretty much become a consumer device more than anything else despite the fact that we have now logic pro and final cut and all that stuff on the ipad i think it's still that's by far what it's used for yeah could the vision pro be an ipad killer yeah absolutely where i see it it's like with the vision pro yeah you can be productive on it but it just seems to me like it's so much easier to watch a movie with glasses on than it mm-hmm. is to hold an iPad, especially as the price starts going down on these things. It'll have to. You know, and that's actually another point I, I think is worth making is that like the Vision Pro that Apple launched, you know, last month is really just the very first step of what I'm sure is going to be a long evolution for this product, right? right. Those capabilities right. of, you know, showing you a, a 3D environment and putting an, an operating system in there um, are going to be on something like this eventually, Right. Like right, right. Apple wants that. Apple wants that. And it'll cost a lot less than $3,500. Right. So I think that's coming to a lot of people, right? To a- answer your question though, about like, does it kill iPad? I think, you know, th- something that you said earlier was really interesting, which was like, you wanted a bigger iPad. And my first thought was Vision OS is your bigger iPad, right? It's going it to, you know, yeah. any, any iPad app that you have, you can like spray it out in front of you in your room. Yeah. And that's going to be exactly what you're looking for. The only thing, and I'm sure this is a problem Apple will solve eventually too, is sort of the group experience. Like you can't sit with your kid 
and and watch YouTube together on an on a Vision OS device. Right. 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 So that's sort of one thing I think about with Vision OS versus iPad is iPad can be like sort of like a group experience device. You know, you've yeah. seen people pull out their phones and look at things together on a phone. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think. Yeah, like, what's your hesitation? I, I guess I'm, I'm noticing your hesitation. Tell me what you're thinking. If I was going to watch something with my kid, I would do it on the TV downstairs or on, sure. a, Mac, yeah, or okay. on a laptop. But like, that's you. Me, I mean, I think there are a lot of people that, that do share an iPad. Yeah, kids especially. Okay. okay, fair enough. Yeah, like... Just for me, from what I've seen is iPad, iPhone, like they're both have like they're to me, it's rarely a community experience. It's usually just one person watching an iPad by themselves. And then if they're going to watch in a group, they sit in front of a TV and do it. But mm -hmm. I agree. I see where you're coming from with like, that's the, that is a limitation with the vision pro is yeah. that everything is personal. So yeah, that's, that's a really good point. One thing also about this vision pro is how difficult it's going to be to show someone how good it is. And I think right. we are contending with that tension right now because you're not, you're going to see videos of it and they're going to be like, okay, that's fine. But the people who have actually tried it and have reported on it have come away really like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. You know, it's, right, and, right. and as readers, we kind of have to take them at their word that like something transformative has occurred and that you're not going to get to experience yourself. Unless, I guess, once they're available, you can book an appointment at an Apple store and then have right, a few right. minutes with it. Right, right. Ah, that's a tough one. Is it, the, the problem, too, is most of people's experiences are very limited, mm -hmm. both like from a marketing corporate perspective. They're all being babysat by Apple, right, mm -hmm. while they're doing mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. they're also, it's whatever, limited to like 30 minutes. Right. So, like, you're going to get, like you know, the old Coke and Pepsi thing, right? Where people were, the Coke folks were like, oh, people love Pepsi with these taste tests until they realized, <laughs> yeah, it's because they like drinking it for the first two seconds. And then they're like, this is garbage. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of the story with new Coke, right? It was that they thought people loved Pepsi more. And then they realized now people don't like the new Coke people. That's a deep cut, Coke. man. You're going way back you, for that one. You know that story? I do. Yes. That's a yeah. long time ago. That, that was like the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> right, but that's the th that's the thing is I feel like people are like, oh yeah, we love it. It's like yeah, yeah. I use it for like thirty minutes. Like, right. what's it gonna be like sitting down watching a movie, dealing with the battery length, dealing with bandwidth issues, having that battery in your pocket? Absolutely. Like, is there gonna be like what do you call it? Repeated what do you call it? R RSI issues, right? Right. So right. like you know that's kind of the thing I'm I'm interested in. But yeah, me too. Uh, we all are. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Stay are tuned. You building. Are you building anything for the Vision Pro? No. Have you no. tried it? Have you? No. I, I just, I'm, I'm hesitant. So I'm kind of like hesitant with any of the new APIs, like jumping into it, just because it's going to be so much. So for yeah. instance, with like Swift Data, like it, it's, I'm mm -hmm. finally getting into it this week, but I feel like there's so many other things I need to do before I get to that point. So Vision OS is like the same thing where it's like, oh my gosh, like it's a big, it's a big plate of, of stuff to have to, you know, deal with. Any WWDC is threatening to be very overwhelming to any developer's life. And yes. I, this is one of the lessons I've learned. And if there's one thing I can share with your viewership, readership, listenership, it would be to give yourself a break. You know, like if you're finding you're overwhelmed by all the technology, take a break. No, nobody's 
you know, pushing you specifically to know everything and learn everything at once. And that's a lesson that I've taken myself. It's like, I can't stay on top of it. I have my own goals, honestly, and they don't involve staying abreast of every single technology that comes out at every WWDC. Yeah. And there's two, two things. A, they're not always fully baked. So FYI, so <laughs> you might run up against a wall and think, drive yourself crazy because you're like, what am I doing wrong? Only to yeah. find out you're doing nothing wrong. It's a bug. Yeah. And then the other thing is like in the real world, not everybody's going to have the new OSs installed and clients, you know, they have to report, they have to actually support older OSs. So exactly. Yeah. That's something to keep in mind. Was there anything else you wanted to mention on the Vision Pro or WWDC before I jump back into Mac? No, it's more like stay tuned for Vision OS. Like Apple has given us a very early preview. So a lot of people are going to get a chance to play with the SDK. They have already. We've seen a lot. But now it's really time to see how the hardware integrates with this whole thing. And that story won't be told until early 2024. So jumping back to talking about Mac indie development, what we talked about the code, right? What else do people need to know if that's what they want to get started, you know, get into, I guess? So I think we all love to build the thing. And what I'm going to say I'm super guilty of, have been for like 15 years, is that we build the thing, but then we're no good at selling the thing. And I am so bad at selling the thing that this is actually the one big difference that I've promised myself to be better at going forward. I mentioned earlier that I've got a couple of apps in development. Well, I'm not just going to build them and throw them out there and tell Twit Mastodon now and hope for the best. I'm actually going to have like a promotional plan, okay? When I build these things, um, my goal is to find the communities that will use it and put it in front of them and find influencers and the people who would actually use it that are well-regarded in their communities and get them to talk about it. And advertise and come up with PR plans and, you know, and not so much focus on the media either, especially the technology media, which has always routinely let me down over the years. So I think real grassroots style promotion is the key to any kind of hope for indie success, because there's so many apps out there that getting the attention that you need to build a customer base is super hard. It's not going to just happen, right? So you need to really get on the ground and make it happen. So that's kind of my big advice to myself and to anyone who might be considering the same thing. What would you say is like the first step for getting getting your name, getting the name of your app out there and get letting people yeah, know Yeah, it's it. finding those communities. So I'll give you an example. Okay. Like my app that I'm working on, Quantum Author, is, is a long-form writing app. For novelists and it could be for others as well anybody who needs to make big documents and so my wife is a writer and you know as a novelist and belongs to several communities of writers and is going to put me in touch with them so that you know i as like a app developer can go to them and say hi i'm i have this app now you know you've been using scrivener all these years or ia writers say have a look at this tell me what you think and if you have any feedback, I'm right here. I'm the actual developer. I built it. So if you have anything to say, say it to my face and <laughs> I'll make it better. And, you know, yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. that's handy. You know, that's cool. Not a lot of people get that uh, opportunity. So that's kind of where I'm going with this. That makes a lot. 
that is by far the thing is like finding a community out there did you because just sorry i want to keep t- talking i would just want to really emphasize that is like find the community of users and where they are and like reach out to them get to know them get you know have them test the app etc i think that's that's really really important uh with any app so a couple couple other questions i want to ask you did you start an email i will that will be one of the things i do absolutely yes email super important yeah 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 i i think that starting an email list i've heard that so many times like you don't have to like babysit it you don't have to like go in and like send them an email every week doing nothing but like just have some way to get a hold of people directly i think is I super important and then and then the other thing is i was going to ask is how how did you know that this app was like a thing as opposed to just some fun idea that you're like oh there might not be anybody who buys this but man i sure want to make it and like, how, how do you know that there's an actual community out there with any, I guess? Woo! Uh, for this app in particular? For Quantum Author? Okay. So, mm-hmm. I guess this has happened a lot. Where I've, I've actually shipped a lot of apps over the years that haven't had any success whatsoever. And so, I always come to them with the idea that, oh, that's a cool idea. What if this existed? And that's been sort of my impetus for moving forward. And right. I haven't really considered strongly what market they might have, how many people other than myself might find it useful. So that's kind of a problem. For Quantum Author, though, I, I kind of got the sense, you know, from listening to my wife and from, you know, looking at the community, first off, knowing through my wife that there is a very active and huge community of writers. Like, you know how many writers there are? Well, there are so many more. There's orders of magnitude, more people who want to be a writer and aren't effectively yes. writers, right? Kind of like yeah. what's the picks and shovels in the gold rush. You know, those, those are the people that made money in the gold rush in the 19th century, right? The people that sold the tools to the prospectors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I want to be a... That's, a, that's an even deeper cut. You're quite right. <laughs> So I want to, I want to, you know, sell those tools to a group of people who could use another tool uh, or at least consider another tool and see if it fits the way they write. And I feel there are so many writers out there that surely I can peel off a portion of them from the likes of like, again, Scrivener or IA writer or storyist is another one. There's a bunch of, of novel writing apps out there and, you know, they've, found their own niches and i think the market's big enough that it can withstand another competitor and i think i have a unique approach to the problem as well that would bring people in yeah yeah great 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 point so one of the questions i want to ask we've done we've had folks like Traz and daniel jellica and matt on making money like literally making money what do you go with for selling your app and making your money like Paddle, StoryKit, RevenueCat, Mac App Store. What, like, what's kind of your venue? Like, what's, yeah. how do you make that decision? And why did you go with it? And what are some drawbacks? Yeah, or okay, well, I can in, in any of at least talk about my thinking process because it's not complete yet. You know, Quantum Author <laughs> is in late development right now. Like, I'm I'm tidying up some features. The beta is ongoing. I haven't even fully settled on my business plan, like how it's going to make money. My current thinking is that it will be a free app with sort of pro features that are unlocked by a monthly subscription. I had considered, and I've, you know, I have an app in the Mac app store and I'm not really 
I'm not really persuaded that it is a viable or desirable outlet for my app. I definitely feel like the Mac App Store provides like a really convenient place for users to find software. I don't know the extent to which they do, and you certainly cannot count on it as like a promotional tool for your app. I don't, in other words, I'm not sure that I would get 30% or 15% per transaction value out of it as I would going with something like a paddle, which is what I'm actually thinking about using um, to offer a subscription, say like a $5 a month thing um, that, you know, paddle takes what, 7%. Um, So it's just makes a lot more sense uh, economically speaking to go with them still they provide great SDKs um, easy to integrate so you know why not do that and then just count on myself to promote my app you know sell it from my website okay. don't have to worry about app review post free uh, updates whenever I want you know that sort of thing and of course my customers will be my customers and not Apple's that to me is everything yeah have you one thing I've thought of, so first of all, let us let me ask the big question. With not going with the App Store, can do you, was part of that decision sandboxing at all? No, not really. No, that didn't really affect me at all. Okay. Like My app isn't actually sandboxed, but it wouldn't be hard to make it sandbox. That's a, that's, that's a good point about sandboxing. But, well, this is a question I haven't asked very often, but why not both? Why not go with the Mac App Store and Paddle? I've thought about that too. So I have an app I'm working on. It's sandboxed. I'm probably going to go with the Mac App Store because I'm lazy, but maybe at some point do it on Paddle too just to like, you know, have another easier way for people to find it and stuff. Like, I don't know. What's your thought on that? Is that like just overkill and not worth it? Uh, that's That's kind of my feeling. It's that... It's a lot of work, you know, both, both are a lot of work, right? Yeah. Like integrating paddles, a lot of work, integrating with the Mac app store is actually a lot of work too. Right. You know, like you've got to do the only app purchase thing. You've got to set up a subscription. It's not easy, even with revenue cat, not a sponsor. They're, <laughs> they're really good, but it's still a lot. And so my, my feeling is I'm going to choose one and, you know, support it like as fully as I can, because I've got too many other things to worry about, right? Like supporting a single app is hard enough. I'm going to have a second one, hopefully soon. And I don't want to like, you know, have to like align releases between the, the web version, if you will, and the Mac app store version of the app. Right. Um, because that, that has brought challenges as well for other developers uh, that we've seen historically. Um, so it's just uh, that, that just adds a level of complexity that I don't want to continue with uh, at all. And you're just one person. Let's not forget that. I'm just one guy. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Before we close out, I wanted to give you an opportunity and talk a bit more about this app that you're working on, Quantum Author. You want to explain what it is and how it's helpful to novel writers? Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for asking. Um, Quantum Author, it's, uh, like you've said, it's a novel writing app for and for long-form writing. Uh, so anyone who, who has long stuff to write like that crosses, say, many files... Uh, we'll find Quantum Author useful. It's based on Git, actually. So when you're writing, uh, it's automatically taking snapshots of your changes and uh, keeping a history. So if you're used to Git or have used Git as a software developer, um, the premise basically Quantum Author is that I'm bringing the capabilities of Git to writing. And you can look back on your snapshots, your commits, view your changes over time, and 
you can also create branches and experiment with your manuscript. And so like sort of the example that I give in the terrible, terrible video that I created for this thing was that if you were Jane Austen writing Pride and Prejudice, that you could experiment with an alien invasion and make changes on a new branch. And if you find that doesn't work out, then you can just switch back to main and all your changes are consigned to this branch. But if it works out, then you can merge back into the main branch with the experiment results intact. And I provide like a merge conflict resolution editor, which is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> and the other course, the other feature that, that Git provides is the ability to back up to a remote host automatically. And so that's one of the big features that I provide the writers is so snapshots, branching, and online backup seamless in uh, the background while you're writing. And so your, your stuff is safe, which is kind of a big deal. So that's Quantum Author, currently in beta. I'm hoping to launch in the next couple months, but there's still a lot of work to do. So we'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. That's awesome. I'm, I'm curious, like, do novelists, are there a lot of novelists that are also software developers that are like, oh, I get this. This is really cool that you can do Git and branching and stuff like that. Yeah, I want to be. I want to really hasten to add. First off, that yes, there are a lot of software developers that are writers. When I announced my beta, I got thirty of them, which I think was a pretty big number, who jumped mm -hmm. in and said, "Oh yeah, I'm a writer, and you know, I also develop software because they follow me on Mastodon, or or you know, somewhere in the social network." But the, I mean, they do not represent my target audience. Let's put it that way. And I want to also hasten to add, hasten that I do not talk about Git in my promotional materials at all. Well, yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to hide yeah. that behind the curtain. Yeah, I get it. Exactly. And like I've I've really struggled during development to make the features of Git available to the user without making it look like the features of Git are available to the user, you know? So <laughs> because Git is notoriously complex, you know? Yes. Yes. That I've, I'm really only taking a subset of its features, you know, yeah, and, you're not, you're and not keeping gonna it really allow simple. people do interactive rebases on their mm -mm -mm. novel, hopefully. No, so, sir. Yeah. yeah. Not, not happening. Yeah. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been oh, fantastic. I always love so talking about Mac development. So, yeah, glad to have you on. Where can people find you online? Well, I'm on Mastodon, mastodon.social slash at Aaron Vey. I'm also a contractor and I have a website for myself. It's called innovative.com. I have fancy business cards have just arrived. Ooh. So <laughs> I will be at SwiftTO next month in August to hang out with all of you. And I'm also giving a talk at SwiftTO. What are you so, talking about? It's actually a non-technical talk. It's called Persistence is My Superpower and it can be yours as well. And it talks about sort of my journey to become a successful indie app developer. So definitely check that out. I know. Tickets yeah, I don't know if it'll become available. So definitely check that out too. That's I enjoyed right. it a few years ago. So yeah, folks should definitely go. Thank you again. People can Thank find you. me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My, I'm on Mastodon at leogdion.ci.im. <laughs> LinkedIn and other places. My website is Bright Digit. Please take some time if you're watching this on YouTube, like and subscribe. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, I'd love a review as well. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you all again. Bye, everyone.